Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 31. Matthew chapter 15, 21 to 31 is where we're going to be this morning. Well, if you'll bear with me in my nerdiness for just a moment, uh, in the last book of The Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, um, there is a scene where Samwise Gamgee and Frodo Baggins are on their way to Mount Doom. I know, nerdy, like I said. Um, they are in a place of particular despair. Clouds have rolled in and darkness surrounds them all. In fact, they're on the mountain of the shadow and they're cloaked in darkness They are in despair. Frodo is wearing around his neck the ring that he is trying to destroy that represents all kinds of evil. As they grow closer to Mount Doom, he can feel the presence of evil evermore around them. And they gather together, them two there on the mountain, as they're trying to uh, evade searching armies that are seeking to kill them. They're in utter despair and they're wiped out. They're completely fatigued. Frodo decides to sleep. Samwise Gamgee is the servant of Frodo. He's sitting around and he's watching over him as he sleeps to protect him. And he can't help but feel the gloom of despair of darkness that's all around him as he watches his master sleep. And so he climbs up on top of a little peak to kind of look out and he looks up at the sky. It's clouds all around. And he can't help but feel the deep sadness of the darkness that's around him. And then J.R. Tolkien says this about Sam. He says, There, peeping among the cloud rack above the dark tor, high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope Return to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. This morning, we're celebrating the incarnation of Christ. The season is all about the incarnation of of Christ, whom the Apostle John in the Gospel of John says about him, the light shone, shined in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This morning we're going to see in our passage Jesus, this light, coming to the Gentiles, coming to a place where we might not expect him to show up. Let's look in our passage in Matthew chapter 15, 21 to 31. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. 
He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray that you would give us help as we seek to understand this passage, rightly interpret it, and apply it to our lives. May this Christmas season, maybe even more so than the ones that preceded it, be a powerful testimony to us of the incarnation of the Son of God, shining in the darkness, not least of which in our own hearts. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you've probably seen the image of three wise men a million times on Christmas cards and maybe even in nativity scenes. You've probably got some on your mantle, maybe even in your front yard. This scene of the Magi coming to see the Christ child in the manger comes from Matthew chapter 2 where we see these wise men. They're coming from the east and they come directly to Jerusalem which after all is where kings should be born. And they're asking, where is this one who has been born king of the Jews? Now, this was really significant in that time, mainly because Herod's title, Herod the Great, who was over the entire region, whom they're talking to and asking, where is he who has been born of king of the Jews? Herod's title that was given to him by the Roman government was king of the Jews. So naturally, the Magi, the wise men, are coming and they're asking Herod, where is the one who's been born? Where's your son? Herod doesn't have a son. He hasn't had a son being born. And so he's wondering what they're looking for. Now, someone coming from out of country, recognizing another as king of the Jews, is a slap in the face to Herod. And so because of that, Herod wants this child dead, and so he seeks to kill him. But the wise men, you understand, were not Jewish. Their coming from the east is the first of several passages in the book of Matthew that clues us in that the Messiah is coming not only for the Jews, but for the Gentiles also. And then in chapter 4 of Matthew, remember Jesus' fame spreads even amongst the Gentiles. The Gentiles hear about his healing miracles and they're coming to him in droves too. Not just the Jews, but the Gentiles also. And then in chapter 8 of Matthew, we get the Roman centurion coming to Jesus whose servant it needs to be healed. And he heals the Roman centurion's servant. The Roman centurion being a Gentile, his servant might have been a Gentile as well. And then there's also the two men that are possessed by a legion of demons that he casts out the demons. 
They are also Gentiles. And then also in chapter 8, Jesus says this. This is from Jesus' own mouth. He says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So suffice it to say that Matthew's readers, by this point in the gospel, expect there to be some sort of day coming when the Gentiles are going to be included in the message of the gospel as it is preached. But in our passage this morning, perhaps we get more than we bargained for when he goes into Gentile territory. And we see the reaction of the people that are there as they not only exercise faith in the Messiah, but they exercise great faith in the Messiah. In the Jewish Messiah. There are a couple of things that I want us to see about Jesus' mission and what what it means to truly believe in the one whom God has sent. The first thing that I want you to see is that Jesus has come for all that believe. Jesus has come for all that believe. There is never a more timely season, I don't think, to deal with the incarnation of Christ than this one, Christmas. Christmas. And I don't think there is any passage that is more explicit than this one to underscore the Messiah's availability to everyone that believes. Now, you might think to yourself, I don't know. Jesus sounds a little harsh in this passage. There's the whole bit about dogs and things like that. What is that? What is going on there? That sounds a little bit harsh. So Jesus, once again, he withdraws away from the Pharisees this time to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And it should be pointed out that it doesn't seem that Jesus is going into this area specifically to do ministry. It seems more like he's going into this area to rest. He went to the, it says district or region, not to the specific cities of Tyre and Sidon, but to the region to rest with his disciples. Now these are Gentile cities. Make no mistake about it. These cities that he's going to are Gentile cities, and he has just had a a confrontation in the previous passage with the Pharisees. Now, after the big confrontations and things like this, Jesus often moves away from there, if not for his own rest, but to let other people just kind of cool off just a little bit and let their tempers sort of uh, subside a little bit. Now, Jesus has just ruffled some feathers of the Pharisees. And he isn't shy about ruffling feathers, but he is measured in his approach of how he ruffles feathers. So he's off with his disciples in the region of the Gentiles to get some rest. When it says, when behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying out. Now, as the reader, this should really perk your attention up a little bit, at least a very little bit, because we hear this term, this woman who comes to him is a Canaanite. And that term Canaanite, it feels very, uh, well, Old Testament, doesn't it? The word Canaanite feels kind of Old Testament. That's because it is. It is very Old Testament. In fact, Mark records the same story and he calls her a Syrophoenician woman, 
which is a more colloquial term to the first century. Canaanite is an archaic term. It's an ancient term. It's not used anymore. Mark uses the more uh, colloquial term, the more current term of Syrophoenician, but not Matthew. Matthew uses the term Canaanite. This is the only time in the New Testament Canaanite is actually used. It's right here. And there are very few times even the word Canaan is used to describe the land that they're in. The word Canaan is only used by New Testament characters to talk about the stories of the Old Testament. When people are journeying out of the wilderness and they come to the land of Canaan. But they don't call the land that they're living in Canaan. So this is very Old Testament that we're seeing here. Now, if you were sitting in a restaurant with a friend of yours and the waitress comes up and asks you what you would like to drink and your friend ordered a sarsaparilla, what would you think? You would look at him strange. First of all, the waitress would probably look at him strange, but you would also, with that term, would also come up connotations of 19th century cowboys, handlebar mustaches, old westerns maybe, Clint Eastwood movies, all kinds of things that would be conjured up in your mind, all relating to the early western period of civilization when sarsaparillas were a thing. Similarly, calling this woman a Canaanite, not least of which in the district of Tyre and Sidon, which were Old Testament cities, big time Old Testament cities that, that, led, that persecuted the, the Jews and led them into idolatry uh, and were judged. These Old Testament cities, along with the term Canaanite, are going to uh, cue, cl- clue you in that Matthew is doing something here. So immediately we're being introduced to this woman and we have to wonder what's going on here. Well, the Canaanites worshipped false gods. And they were most often responsible for leading the Jews into idol worship. The Canaanites were also the ones that the Jews failed to drive out when they entered the promised land. They were supposed to, but they didn't. In fact, the Canaanites were the ones that often led the Jews into idolatry by their keeping them around. But here we have a Canaanite who is calling on the Jewish Messiah recognizing him as Lord and Son of David. And yet, lest we forget, in the previous passage, Jesus' own people are the ones that reject him. There's no doubt that we're supposed to see this as a significant shift where the Gentiles, not least of which the Canaanites, are finding a home with the Messiah where the Jews have rejected him and vacated the premises. Even the Canaanites recognize his lordship. Even the Canaanites recognize the establishment of the true kingdom of God being established in the land. But then we get this really strange part of the scene where she keeps pestering the disciples. She's begging them, she's crying out loud, she's pestering them, and she's saying that her daughter is severely oppressed by a demon, and Jesus, it says, just ignores her. He just keeps walking, or keeps sitting, or something. He just ignores her. And eventually, she's so much of an annoyance in verse 23 that the disciples are begging Jesus to actually do something about this crazy woman who refuses to shut up because our ears are starting to bleed. Jesus, please, do something here. They seem to want him to do exactly what 
she's asking, will you just heal her daughter or just cause her to show, shut up? Because 12 grown men could obviously get her to do whatever they wanted her to do. But they appeal to Jesus, will you just give her what she's asking for? Because we cannot stand listening to her any longer. But Jesus' response is kind of strange there in verse 24. He says to the disciples, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, this is exactly the mission that he gave the disciples in chapter 10, didn't he? Go nowhere amongst the Gentiles. Go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, he tells them. So she, of course, takes this as permission to plead her case in front of Jesus himself. The disciples turn to Jesus. They're asking him a question. They're appealing to him on behalf of her. And since the the guards have let their guard down, she slips past the guards and goes straight up to Jesus. And she kneels before Jesus and begs him in verse 25, Lord, help me. So now we have a Canaanite not only recognizing him as Lord and son of David, but kneeling before the Jewish Messiah calling him again, son of David and Lord. If there needed to be any more proof that the kingdom of God was actually at hand in the person and work of Jesus Christ, there it is. But the story reaches its pinnacle where you would expect something amazing to happen. Well, surely this story is, something incredible is going to take place here. And in verse 26, Jesus says no and calls her a dog to boot. Now, Jesus calling a Gentile a dog is not the most heartwarming Christmas story a room full of Gentiles could ever hear. Am I right? It seems a little bit, I don't know, uncomfortable. When we hear Jesus calling a Gentile a dog. I mean, we sing a song entitled, O Come All Ye Faithful. There's no verse in there that says, except for you dog Gentiles. You don't come. The reason that we think this is offensive is because we read it as a metaphor instead of how it's intended as a parable. In a metaphor, I want you, if I'm telling you a metaphor, I want you to see the similarities between two things. As an example, the world is a stage. I'm comparing the nature of the world and the nature of a stage. And immediately when I do that, you begin to make your own inferences and your own connections as to what I mean when I say the world is a stage. Maybe I mean that everywhere you go and everything you do is a performance for someone. I could maybe mean that by that comparison. Or maybe I'm telling you that you should always dress to impress since the world is a stage. Or maybe I'm saying that the world by its nature is fake. It's a performance. There may be many points that I could be making by saying that metaphor, the world is a stage. Perhaps I'm saying them all at once, but the important point in a metaphor is that you see the correlation between two similar items. I want you to see how they relate to one another. Now, if Jesus is using a metaphorical comparison here, then it certainly would be offensive. You are a dog 
and these are my children. In a parable, though, the ultimate goal is to make a point about the comparison. The point of the parable is not merely to show, but also to explain. So in a parable, the principal parts don't have to have much in common for the comparison to stand. So in a few passages from now, Jesus will say, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now this is a short little parable comparing the Pharisees' teaching to leaven. But he's not saying about leaven that it's inherently bad. I've actually heard people argue that before, that what he's saying is leaven is inherently bad or sinful. Or he's not saying about the Pharisees' teaching that it has the ability to make dough rise, as an example. He's making the point that like leaven, the Pharisees' teaching can permeate your thinking. It can invade everything. So he's not saying that their teaching is like leaven in every way but in a very particular way. Now, similarly here, he's not saying she has the characteristics of a dog. He's not even saying that she's unclean. In the Old Testament, dogs weren't specifically called out as unclean, though most Jews thought of them as unclean animals. Remember, she's a Gentile. Unclean does not make sense to her. In fact, for thousands of years before Jesus, people were domesticating dogs. We've dug up graves with skeletons of dogs dug with, buried there with their owners. So when she hears the term dog, she's thinking of a family pet, which is exactly how she responds to Jesus. Even the dogs eat from their master's tables. She's thinking of a family pet. So in reality, Jesus is saying the same thing to her in the form of a parable that he said to the disciples two sentences ago. The parable is about priorities. One takes priority over the other. He's been appointed to serve the Israelites first in an analogous way to how you would feed the children before you would feed the pets now, proof that this is the way Jesus means it is the reaction of the woman. She continues the parable there in verse 27. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat, eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Not only does she not take offense to it, she's quite happy to play the role of the dog in this parable. She understands, and this is the key to her her. Uh, claim here and Jesus' response then back to her. She understands that she is not, nor should she be, the priority for the Jewish Messiah. She is not the priority for the Jewish Messiah. And she understands that and she confesses that to him. Now, Jesus is astounded by the faith of the Canaanite woman. And why? Because this woman is demonstrating the kind of faith that Jesus requires. She's demonstrating the kind of faith that we've seen talked about all throughout Matthew, the kind of faith of a citizen of the kingdom that he calls poor in spirit in the Sermon on the Mount. This is a person that exhibits complete dependence on Jesus as Lord and King. 
That's what it means to be poor in spirit, is that you exhibit complete dependence on Jesus as Lord and King. Your dependence is on God for all of life's needs, both physical and eternal and spiritual. Everything in in life is lived in complete dependence on God for everything. That's how Matthew is summarizing what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Now look at this woman. She exemplifies this kind of poor in spirit person. First, she acknowledges his nature as having authority and position. She calls him there in verse 22, Lord and Son of David. She's persistent in her calling. So persistent is her plea that the disciples are personally annoyed by her. She doesn't care. She doesn't seem to be concerned at all about the disciples thinking she's annoying. In fact, her only concern is that the Lord hears her and responds. She kneels before him. The word can also be used of worship. It carries the idea of falling prostrate before someone. Here it probably should be seen as her kneeling before the Lord, which is another sign that this Canaanite woman recognizes his unique authority to heal and to speak into this situation. So he is the rightful king in her mind, not only of the Jews, but as the, of the Canaanites as well. So what she's saying is he's her king. The last, she recognizes that she has no right to this healing. She has absolutely no right to it. And she understands that. There's nothing about her, about her pleading, about her incessant screaming, nothing about her as being someone in need that puts her in a position where Jesus is obligated to do something for her. She recognizes that. She's asking merely for a crumb because even a crumb from the Lord is better than a feast in a million other places. You cannot better define poor in spirit than to look at this lady right here in the text. In fact, in Matthew 5, 3, where it's described, blessed are the poor in spirit, you might even write this passage down as a reference to what that looks like. As I said, Matthew is making reference to the Sermon on the Mount throughout the rest of the gospel, and we're seeing people that exemplify this, and Jesus is calling them out for their faith. Remember, he does that with the centurion. Never in all of Israel have I seen one with such faith. He does so with the bleeding woman who would touch only the hem of his garment, and she knows that she would be healed. He does this with some of the crowds periodically through the gospel. People that exemplify this level of dependence on Jesus as having divine authority to establish the kingdom of God often get attention drawn to them and and are called poor in spirit. And Matthew is elevating them in his gospel to show you this is what Jesus meant by poor in spirit. It's Jesus' way of saying, that's it. That's what I was talking about. That's what poor in spirit really looks like right there. Christmas, especially in America, even more so in the South, is pretty ubiquitous. It's it's everywhere. Many are going to be at Christmas Eve services on the 24th, like ours we're having here or other places. People everywhere are getting time off of work. 
People don't have a problem with Christmas then. You can't say Christmas, but I'll take days off work. People everywhere are going to their families, homes. Many are going to hear the Christmas story read maybe once, maybe twice, maybe a few times. Many people are going to see the nativity scenes on their mantles and in their yards, drive around, see the lights, and see the manger scenes that are depicted in people's front yards. Many are going to show up for Christmas services, church services right up to Christmas. And these are all ways in which our culture claims Jesus as Messiah, claims some sort of association with this story. It's sort of the culture's way of standing next to the Canaanite woman and saying, me too, I'll have what she's having. Even if that's days off work, I'll take a miraculous healing for sure. But the question that we have to ask ourselves is would Jesus have turned to you and said, O woman or O man, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. In other words, is your dependence on the Lord communicated in the way that you live your life? Or is it merely seasonal? Is your faith in Christ kind of like your celebration of Christ's incarnation? Seasonal. Do you desire the Lord like this woman here? Because if this is an example of what it means to be poor in spirit, then Jesus has already defined this woman as someone who belongs in the kingdom of heaven. And nothing short of this woman belongs in the kingdom of heaven. Are her actions a picture of your faith? There's no doubt that the incarnation of the eternal Son of God is available for everyone. But if you are under the impression that your faith can also be seasonal, then I'm afraid you're sorely mistaken. He came to save his people from their sins, but to claim him as Messiah, you must believe in him truly. Second, belief will result in worship. I've already given you the answer, but the question might be for us then, what would it look like to come to Jesus truly? We see that in this passage, immediately following the interaction with the Canaanite woman. Look in verse 29. It says, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. Now Mark tells us that this was in the region of the Decapolis, which is more Gentiles. But Matthew does not tell us who he's going to, just that he's going around the Sea of Galilee. And so the last group of people that we have in our minds is the Canaanites in the region of Tyre and Sidon. And so it seems that Matthew wants us to keep in our minds the name Canaanite. So we're probably thinking about Canaanite people here. At least that's what Matthew wants us to keep in our mind. But regardless of the reason that he doesn't tell us exactly where Jesus is walking, it's obvious that he wants us to keep in our mind that these are Gentiles because in the end they glorify the God of Israel. But then he sits down with the crowds. The Gentiles come to him in verse 30. It says, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them. So then let me ask you, 
What happened to this whole thing with the Canaanite woman where he said, I have come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I didn't come for you Gentiles. I can't give bread to the dogs. What happened to all that if now he's sitting there on a hillside and he's just healing all of them? Not only that, but in the passage next week, what we're going to see is he gives them bread, lots of bread, feeds 4,000 of the Gentiles with bread that we can only presume was intended for the children and not for the dogs. Well, remember in the previous passage where Jesus made this controversial statement, he said this in verse 11 of chapter 15. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. So Jesus basically upended 1,500 years of dietary restrictions for the Jews. In fact, Mark tells us explicitly that that's what he did. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us that. He doesn't tell us that the dietary restrictions for the Jews are over at this point. Instead, he just shows Jesus not only upending 1,500 years of dietary restrictions, but then going to minister to a bunch of Gentiles that the Jews didn't think were supposed to have access to the Messiah at all. So then what was with this pushing back against the Canaanite woman and this talk about dogs and doing ministry amongst the Gentiles? I think the answer is that Jesus' intent was to expose this woman's heart in front of everyone. It's a good policy when you begin reading your Bible to assume that Jesus is kind and loving and patient. If you walk away from the reading of Scripture and you go, man, Jesus was really being a jerk there. You read it wrong. All right, the problem is you, the problem is not Jesus, I promise you. Now, he says some things bluntly, he puts things as matter-of-factly, he does offend a lot of people, but he's not being a jerk unnecessarily. That said, Jesus also knows the inward intentions of the heart of everyone. So he knows this lady, I dare say he even knew her before the foundation of the world, before she was even born. This scene, instead, was an exercise in exposing for everyone what it means to be poor in spirit. R.T. France puts it like this. Need we assume that when eventually the woman won the argument, Jesus was either dismayed or displeased? May this not rather have been the outcome he intended from the start? A good teacher may sometimes aim to draw out a pupil's best insight by deliberate, by deliberate challenge, which does not necessarily represent the teacher's own view, even if the phrase devil's advocate may not quite be appropriate to the context. So it seems that Jesus' intent is to come into the world so that even the Gentiles may believe, and when he does, there's an example for all of us what true belief actually looks like. What does it mean, Gentiles, to actually come to the Lord truly? What does it mean to actually come and worship at his feet? It looks like this. It looks like the worship of the people who have had their sick and their lame and their blind and their deaf healed. What's the result? They worship. 
It's the result of the Canaanite woman. It's also the result of these Gentiles here in the Decapolis. What do they do as a result of the miracles? Look at the end of verse 31. They glorified the God of Israel. They gave glory. They gave honor. They ascribed worth to. They magnified the God of Israel for the deliverance that he had brought to them through the person of Jesus Christ. During this season, we celebrate the moment in human history where God took on flesh and dwelt among us. But you cannot claim to have biblically believed in the incarnation if it hasn't resulted in a lifestyle of worship of the God that provided him. It isn't biblical faith to merely profess a belief in Jesus Christ but then for you to never engage in worship, for you to disappear from Christ's body altogether, for you to never show reverence for the God of all creation that gave this Christ to you for the purpose of saving you from your sin, that isn't biblical belief in God in any way. The only possible outcome of true belief and worship in the triune God The only way to claim him as true Messiah is to then worship the triune God because of him. Imagine for just a moment, like Samwise and Frodo. You're on a dark journey of life. All around you, is not only sin, but things sin has touched. That everything around you is fallen, and even within you, you carry this burden of sin. It's complete and total darkness on this journey that you're walking. And then all of a sudden, when everything feels like all hope is gone, in the distance on the horizon is a little pinhole of light. What would you do? Where would you go? Would you not walk, maybe run, to the light? As perhaps it holds some semblance of hope for you. This should be the gospel to every single one of us. That in the incarnation of Christ... 2,000 years ago in a little town of Bethlehem, recorded in the pages of Scripture, is hope in the midst of a world of fallenness, in the midst of a world of death and destruction. Now, what does it say about me if I look at that light and I say, wow, that's a light on the horizon. That looks like hope. And then I turn to the darkness and begin walking away from it? Would it say that I actually believe about that light on the horizon? That it really is hope? Of course not. So then, how for us, if we celebrate the incarnation on December 25th, and we proclaim it is true and put nativity scenes out everywhere, how then does it not occupy our thoughts every other day of the year? How is it that it's not our celebration every single day of our life? 
How is it that it doesn't occupy our conversations around the dinner table? How is it then that we can celebrate the incarnation of God himself taking on flesh and living amongst us and be more concerned with work, with friends, with money, popularity, with whatever? How is it that we can claim, I believe that is true, the greatest event in human history next to the resurrection of Christ? How is it that I can say that is true, yet 364 days out of my year you wouldn't know it? If you believe in the Incarnation, if you believe that truly light has come to the Gentiles, to the Gentiles, if you believe that that's true, what do you do as a result? It should result in worship. It should result in your fervent participation in a local body where Christ is preached, where the gospel is preached, where Christ is worshiped, where the Bible is taken as authoritative and pointing to not only the incarnation, but the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. It means that we should be a part of regular worship gatherings, that it should be a real hard thing to actually miss a Sunday where we gather together with his body and proclaim him as resurrected from the dead. It should be a rare thing. It should be a hard decision to make, to be absent and to forget about or forsake the gathering, the assembly of the saints. We should employ the regular spiritual disciplines in our own life. If the incarnation is true, shouldn't it inform our mornings? Shouldn't we, I don't know, read the word that's sitting before us? Shouldn't it hold our attention? Shouldn't we be really interested in what it's saying about how we live? Shouldn't we desire to share this with others? Maybe to tell other people, as they used to say, the reason for the season. Should be the reason for every season. But the point is, we cannot, we will not, as a church, nor as Christians, as people that truly believe, let the incarnation of Christ merely become an icon that we put on our lawns and on our mantles. That's not what it is. This event forever changed the course of human history. It forever informed the way I live my life from this day forward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for the neglect in our own hearts. You know mine all too well. Neglect for your word, neglect for time, neglect for a myriad of things, all of which are excuses, all of which are lame. Renew in our minds a sense of your incarnation of Christ. That we would look to it as we see the Gentiles here 
with hope that light has truly dawned. Father, you know all of our apathy in this room. You know all of our lethargy. You know all of our laziness when it comes to employing spiritual disciplines in our own lives. These are sins, and you have, for, you have offered us forgiveness through that same incarnated Son. But I pray that that would end. That our lethargy, our lack of interest, our lack of desire to be in your word would change now. That with a renewed sense of the incarnation, you would set our hearts on fire with a desire to follow after you with all our heart. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.